All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. Well, the nice thing is I don't think this is going to be a super long episode anyway. So Yeah. We said that before. Yeah, right. <laughs> Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Welcome to episode 21 of Acquired, the podcast where we talk about technology acquisitions. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today is a special episode where we yet again break the mold and do a little bit of experimenting of our own here at Acquired. We are uh, covering the press perspective of mergers and acquisitions, and we have special guests with us, Alex Sherman from, uh, from Bloomberg. He's based out of their New York headquarters and is the host of the great Deal of the Week podcast. He started at Bloomberg in 2008 as an intern out of graduate school and has worked in a variety of roles and covered a number of beats since then. Thanks so much, Alex, for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. We are excited to uh, to have you here, and uh, especially as a former um, uh, employee of the media industry myself uh, a number of years ago now, uh, I'm really looking forward to this one. Uh, I think we're going to have a great time talking about the press and how you guys 
uh, cover deals, uh, your business model, uh, and how it all relates to tech and acquisitions. So thanks again for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to be on this side of the table instead of the the host of the podcast, which I'm used <laughs> <Yeah>. to. <I'm, laughs> put my answer in You're getting questions. the questions posed to you. <laughs> yeah, you'll see as, as the course of this goes around, I may end up being uh, like just interviewing you guys for, for a force of habit, but <laughs> yeah. Oh, that'd be <laughs> our listeners can then uh, then see the tables turned. <laughs> um, yeah, for for our listeners out there, we wanted to do this episode. We were we were talking with Alex about you know what would be the right way to uh, kind of like work work together on something or, or how, have Alex be um, on an episode. And and as we were talking, we realized there's this totally fascinating process of the news cycle of M and A and and why we read about stories when we do and how that whole process works that. Um, was really not something I had thought about even after doing 20 episodes of, of uh, this podcast. So um, we thought it'd be a cool idea to, uh, to have Alex on and, and um, you know, clue everyone in on the process. Yeah. So before we kick off, uh, we're going to abandon our traditional structure for this show and do it as a special episode. But I want to sneak in a little bit of history and facts about Bloomberg, because um, I bet a lot of our listeners may consume Bloomberg media, but don't really know much about the company other than Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, uh, was the founder. Um, but it's interesting. So Bloomberg actually, I think, might be like the largest technology company that nobody really thinks about um, or talks about too much because people think about it as a media company. Um, yep. But it actually is at its heart and its origins, a technology company. So it has it was founded in 1981 uh, by Michael Bloomberg. And uh, Michael had been a partner at Solomon Brothers, which was an investment bank on Wall Street. Um, and Solomon Brothers got acquired in either 80 or 81 um, by an entity that was rolling up banks and, and it eventually became Citigroup. Um, and as part of that acquisition, uh, Michael, as a partner, made $10 million in the acquisition. Uh, and he used that money, he turned around, and he started a company called Innovative Market Systems, uh, IMS. Uh, <laughs> not, not quite as catchy, but definitely a little bit yeah. less self-serving. So, fortunately for the brand, a couple of years later, it just changed the name yeah. to Bloomberg. Yes. Um, in 1983, so a couple years later, Merrill Lynch, another large investment bank, actually invested $30 million in the company for a 30% stake. Um, and then ultimately, when Merrill got bought by B of A during the financial crisis in 2008, Bloomberg bought that bought that stake back from, from Merrill. Um, but uh, the core business of Bloomberg is actually this thing called terminals, uh, which... Alex, you probably use every day, and and many consumers of Bloomberg Media use. I do. I um, I just don't have to spend the twenty five thousand dollars a year per user fee that everybody else does. Exactly. <laughs> and and terminals are. This was kind of like the WhatsApp or the um, the maybe Snapchat, more like the WhatsApp for uh, traders for for Wall Street. Uh, long before the smartphone or WhatsApp or AOL or anything like that. It's the, it's the communications platform for Wall Street, and, and basically everybody uses it today. Yeah, and if um, for our listeners out there that do use this, sorry for butchering the explanation of what it is, and for the listeners that don't, it, it's it's this total black hole for people that, that aren't in the industry that they actually, it's a Bloom, it's Bloomberg-branded hardware, and you pay a, an annual fee and it hooks up to service and it has all this software installed and it sits on your your desk and it's your kind of core operating, you know, it's the operating core. system on which you work. Yep. And you make trades on the platform. Uh, you communicate with other traders on the platform. Uh, you can run all sorts of data and analytics on stocks, on companies, on markets. 
Um, it's very, very cool. And as Alex was alluding to, uh, it's also quite expensive. Uh, when, you, <laughs> when you're selling to clients that have a lot of money, they're willing to pay a lot. Yep. yep. Um, so Bloomberg, unlike, it's interesting, you know, uh, and then we'll get into the show here, but uh, in recent years, Bloomberg has evolved and started, you know, started doing radio, which is now podcasts like Alex's Deal of the Week and uh, television has TV channels, news. Um, there are about 2000 plus editors and reporters at Bloomberg uh, that Alex is part of that organization. Um, but uh, the terminals, uh, subscribers to the terminals, as Alex was alluding to, pay about $25,000 a year per terminal. Um, and there are in the neighborhood of half a million people that do that, uh, which makes Bloomberg quite a large company. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about. Um, there's all these, uh, you know, we've talked about the changing dynamics in the media industry on a lot of these different episodes. And, uh, you know, it's primarily because the way that most publications work is just selling ads, and that's their main revenue model. And there's subscription, there's paywalls, and there's all these other things. But, um, you know, with Bloomberg, they, they produce all this media, but the the core um, the core business is is one with network effects, one that's based on technology, one that's essential for people to do, to do their job. And it's it's not monetizing the the ads on the publications. Yeah. And there's a little bit of that too, because, you know, it's a, it's a, a decent business, but, um, you know, yeah. certainly not compared so, to selling terminals. So with that, <laughs> Alex, with that long preamble, um, what's your perspective on all that, Be, you know, being at Bloomberg at this company, but but also being a journalist and, and a reporter and an M&A reporter, how, how does that play out for you? So I started at Bloomberg, as you mentioned, as an intern uh, in January of 2008. Uh, and I have sort of without revealing the who, what, or when, I'd say I've had interviews with virtually every single competitor of Bloomberg since then at one point or another um, for to change jobs or because just someone was interested in meeting me. Uh, and I've never left. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh and the main reason is what you just described. Uh, Bloomberg is, and this has been the case since I joined the company, Bloomberg is in better financial shape than all of our competitors. So it has been hard for me to rationalize why I would go work at, say, <laughs> a newspaper, uh, which really yep. struggles financially and, and lives on advertisement, when our entire operation is, uh, you could say, subsidized by the Bloomberg terminal business, which does $9 billion a year in revenue uh, and is not ad-supported. Uh, ad-supported businesses, unless you're Google or Facebook, are by and large not good. You don't have to look very far. Uh, even digital media companies that have decent valuations really struggle, and nothing is near the size of Bloomberg. So uh, what I have tried to do at Bloomberg is to try to figure out what can I do to provide value here to the core business, not just some sort of ancillary side project. Because you mentioned Bloomberg has Business Week, we have a TV station, we have a radio station, we have podcasts. But in the end, if you're not serving the core function of this business, you're not essential to this business. So whatever I did here, I wanted to make sure that I was providing value to maybe both the common user uh, and the terminal user. And covering M&A, uh, I think is very central to that function because M&A stories move markets uh, a lot more than almost any other story. If we can break a deal, if we can say this company is in talks to buy, you know, company X is in talks to buy company Y, the stocks and bonds are going to move for those companies. The prices are going to move. And it therefore makes it worthwhile 
for you to spend $25,000 a year to buy a Bloomberg terminal if you're trading on this information. And one very important note that your listeners should know is that Bloomberg Terminal customers get our news 15 minutes before the rest of the world gets it. It's basically a built-in paywall. Um, so oh, wow. if you were I didn't a, realize that. That's right. If you're a Terminal subscriber, you have access to this information first. Now, a lot of that that advantage. And if you're had, a hedge fund and you're you're trading the markets like that's and you and you know and Alex breaks a story about you know a potential merger like that that is that pays for itself in literally the $25,000 a year pays for itself in seconds and tr- right yeah well 15 minutes is an eternity eternity it, it, it comes in the sales pitch there's no question that you know some of our biggest scoops while we try to sell customers terminals we say look we broke this deal uh, you know, six billion dollars in in market value was created instantly, and you would have missed it if you don't have a Bloomberg terminal. What I will say, though, and this <laughs> is this is very important toward the future of this business, is that that fifteen minute, um, the fifteen minute delay, has eroded because of social media and, in essence, TV. So what has happened is you still yeah. don't get the story first, but as soon as we hit headlines. It goes on Bloomberg TV, so we have it virtually instantly. So in, in other words, we've sort of cannibalized ourselves that way. And of course, mm-hmm. anyone that has a Bloomberg terminal can then tweet the headline. So we realize that we live in a world now where the 15-minute delay is a little bit anachronistic. It still exists, but it's something that's discussed here internally almost all the time. Like, do we want to change this? Do we still want to keep it? So far, we've decided... As an, as an organization, that there's still value in this, so we do keep it. But you know, tw- Twitter and, and, and other forms of media have certainly put this 15-minute delay in a different category now. And I think we're okay with it because, honestly, so much of the trading is algorithmic that the money is yeah. made instantly. So really, you just need to be first. And as long as you're 0.0001 seconds first, you've paid it off. After that point, when the stock yeah. jumps and everything's programmed in there, it's much less important. Uh, that's exactly where I was going to go. I mean, uh, the um, it's super interesting how that's evolved. It reminds me a little bit of when I was at the Wall Street Journal. You know, our debate was you know, famously the WSJ.com had a paywall uh, in an era when you know very few news organizations did on on the internet. Um, but that's like almost that's like the <laughs> if you're talking about like access to a story when all that matters is the news um that's totally different from this situation and i was going to ask like how do you as a reporter now and when you're covering an m&a acquisition when it is all about that data that's going to feed the algorithmic traders um do you does bloomberg now and do you as you're writing stories like set up data feeds that come out when you break the story so we deal with this in in different ways um so we we know that there's going to be a reaction given our stories and and there are ways within the Bloomberg terminal that we can actually somewhat manipulate the reaction and it becomes incumbent upon us to do this responsibly. So the 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 the, the most telling way that that I can explain this is that our biggest stories are are redheaded. They're literally red on the terminal. So there's a scrolling set of headlines uh. at the bottom of your terminal that are constantly going by. And the biggest stories are highlighted in red. So if we break a news story and we redhead it, there's almost always a massive jump 
in the stocks. And that, I would imagine, has to do with uh, algorithms from trading, from traders that are set up uh, however they do it to be to coded, to where red. if something is redheaded, then the stocks move. So we will purposefully mm. not redhead stories where we don't actually want to generate an enormous market reaction if maybe the story is more nuanced. So, you know, mm. if if let's say a company might be uh, considering buying another company, but they haven't entered formal talks yet or something like that. You know, we, we, we want to make sure that we emphasize the nuance there so that maybe that maybe that particular M&A deal is not as advanced uh, as we would, you know, maybe want one to be. Or maybe here's another example that talks have happened and ended and are now dead and it's not <laughs> yeah. live. For, for example, you, you wouldn't redhead something about, you know, Apple to probably buy McLaren. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's right. In fact, in fact, we did not redhead that story when um, – because we did write sort of a version of it after the FT put mm. out their story, and yes, we did not redhead that story. Although, <laughs> although let me put let me put it this way: when and this is something that we do as a sort of a service to our clients. When the FT ran that story, their headline was redheaded, so we did redhead their headline because the huh. people that ah, made that decision thought that that was an important enough headline. And the FT is of a stature where we have decided at Bloomberg that that they're right almost all the time. So, you know, we've given mm. certain media organizations, the FT, the New York Times, CNBC, the Wall Street Journal, the benefit of the doubt that they're they're you know, they know we know that their track record is good enough that even if they beat us to a story, we typically will alert our clients to that fact. Uh now look the there. Yeah, what's well, interesting, it's almost like even um at that point, this is what's so fascinating about how markets work. Like the news, like you, you guys may have decided not to redhead or not to run a story about that potential acquisition. But once that news is out there, that impacts the markets. So redheading the news that the news, the news that the rumor is out there is probably is super relevant to your customers. Right? You, you, David, you, you hit on something that we talk about all the time here as reporters, which is. If we get beat on a story, how much do we then have to react to somebody else's story? Uh, you know, so it's it's a in other words, this wasn't news a minute ago, and we didn't feel. But now that the now that the news is out there, all of a sudden things are baked into the stock price. So is it worth it for us to negate somebody else's story just to have the the stock price come down? You know, sometimes the answer to that is a yes, and sometimes the answer to that is no, and just let it be and sort of let the fact that Bloomberg didn't match the story speak on its own as, look, you know, we weren't able to, to confirm this. So we're not really in the business of slamming other people's erroneous reports, but sometimes it is sort of necessary to do that if the market has moved one way or another. Right. And it's interesting that your incentives are, are kind of the opposite. I mean, in a, a lot of publications these days, the the incentives are are around page views and and um, you know their their CPMs, and what they want to do is make something seem splashier than it is, so they they get more attention. And for you guys that you know, you don't want to be the boy that cried wolf, and you have a responsibility to the, your your paying customers to deliver them what you believe is the most accurate representation of of the the news. So you, you actually have an, a, an incentive not to downplay things, but certainly to to play them accurately. And if others are overplaying them, then you might be incentivized to give your your customers the the kind of edge by by making sure to downplay it just to negate the overhyping. 
Yeah, def- absolutely, which actually I think makes this place sort of a good place to work because you don't get caught in that game. You can sort of feel good about yourself when you go home at night that your your sole obligation <laughs> is to just be as right as possible. Uh, and, yeah, and, 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 your, your incentives are aligned with the truth. Absolutely, and that helps a lot when we cover M&A because I am reliant on people that are directly involved in these transactions to give me the information uh, to put out these stories. In other words, we can hear all sorts of information from indirect sources. Maybe they're uh, bankers that aren't working on a deal, or maybe they're rival executives, or maybe they're ex-board members, or maybe they're friends of an executive, or maybe they're traders who have a financial incentive on their own. Well, not, none of those sources are good enough for us to publish something on because they're not direct. Yeah. So, so when yeah. when Bloomberg runs a story, as someone who reads it, you can be certain of the fact that this is not indirect information. You know, th- there was there have been a number of cases where I have put out a story and it's happened to be, you know, the day before earnings or something like that. There was a big uh, there was a, it was a company called Synaptics, which is based in uh, California. Um, and yep. it was a takeover target for a Chinese conglomerate for about nine months. And I put out a series of stories basically that said, you know, the the Chinese conglomerate is interested. They're interested in this price. They've done due diligence. They've lowered it to this price. They're still in talks. And then eventually the thing died. And it was a whole life cycle story of interested, lowered price, thing over. And there were like four stories all along the way. And I was the only one that reported it. For whatever reason, no one matched this story. But I knew who my sources were, and they're directly, intimately involved in the process. So from both sides, not just one side. Hmm. So so no one has yeah. an incentive to lie here. Uh, and and that that's also should be pointed out that we have to get both sides sourcing in order to run a story to be comfortable with the fact that it's right. Uh, so everyone is given a chance to sort of weigh in here before we publish things. So I, is, I got that, a number of emails. Um, I got a number of emails from 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 traders saying, you know, you're being played. You're being manipulated here. This is no one else is matching these stories. You, someone is playing you to manipulate the stock and make money off it. But of course, I know who's doing this. And I mean, there, there's there's no way we'd all go to jail. And they have, and it's just not their job <laughs> to do that. So, you know, it's one of those things that I sort of have to explain to people. Like, no, you don't understand the way Bloomberg sourcing is done. I'm not getting this information from traders. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Is that so across the industry? This is great transition. The kind of other thing we wanted to talk another one of the several things we wanted to talk about is. How? What are the nuts and bolts of how this works? So, is that is that standard across the industry, or is that unique to Bloomberg that you need? And is it you know for you to feel comfortable going with a story that you have direct sources from both sides of a deal? Is 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 that your standard? And and is that standard across the industry? So, this can be in general that is the standard. There can be exceptions if we know something is really in hot pursuit and we know the Wall Street Journal is chasing it and we know the Financial yep. Times is chasing it. There are certain times where if we are so certain of one side of the source, let's say it's the CEO of a company that we've gotten to tell us something on background. All this stuff, by the way, is it's never on the record. It's all anonymously sourced. So uh, our, the whole job is based on relationships with people. So if we, if, if we yeah. have an, an existing relationship with the CEO uh, or the chairman of the board of a company and they've told us something, 
uh, at that point, what we'll probably do is we still will reach out to the other side to say we're running this, but we may only give them a very short amount of time to sort of get back to us before to comment, yep. before we say right like at least give them the chance to say no comment and then and then basically what we'll say is all right we've given them the chance they didn't wave us off the story we know our other source is so strong here that we'll go with it and in those cases you will see some stories that we run attributed to just a person familiar with the matter but everything else will be uh, attributed to people familiar with the matter and by and large that means that people on both sides have weighed in on that this. means both sides interesting Wow, this is that's so cool. Yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> and these are the words that you know. I mean, we read, like we read a lot of these articles, given what we do on this show. And um, I think the vast, probably if you're not in the industry, that like eyes just gl- gloss right over that. Like, what does that mean? Like, but but coded in that language is are these um, are these uh, indications about like what the genesis of the story is. So, so I'll give you a little bit more. So there's a lot of inside baseball things that you would never know to look for unless you're talking to a reporter. You can sometimes glean where the information is coming from based on who the reporter is. So people that cover M&A, you have to look up what these people do and what their jobs are. So on a given story, there may be three bylines. The first byline is typically where the main information has come from. Almost all major news organizations does this. So the person with the first byline usually has gotten the critical or maybe the first piece of information to kick off a scoop. This is based purely on fresh news scoops. Well, sometimes on a deal, reporter number one is, let's say, the activist investor reporter. So you know that the information Uh. came from the activist because otherwise – that person wouldn't be on the story. In other cases, maybe the first the, the the first byline is let's say you know Verizon just bought Yahoo. Well, we have a different Verizon reporter than a Yahoo reporter. Same with the Wall Street Journal. Same with Reuters. Uh, Take a look at who the first byline is. If the first byline <laughs> is the Yahoo reporter, then the main information came from Yahoo or someone involved with Yahoo. Wow. So then maybe the last byline is the Verizon reporter. Then you could say, all right, well, then that person probably just called Verizon to check up on that the information from the Yahoo side was right. So you can sort of figure out where the the information came from. Uh, it's not always a leak, though, which is very important, I think, for people. We're not talking about strategic leaks all the time. And, and, and we actually talk about this. If you go to episode seven of my Deal of the Week podcast, uh, I talk about this with the other two M&A reporters at Bloomberg. A lot of the information simply comes from... Uh, you know, what I would say to some degree is coincidence, which is I have been trying to get a meeting with a person for weeks or months, and finally this person has said yes. And so I have lunch or coffee with them, and, and I'm, able, I'm able to ask the right questions to the right person and get information. And then I come back to the office. You know, well, maybe it's seven at night at that point, and we've made a decision at Bloomberg. This story is not so important that it needs to go out at seven at night. We'll put it out tomorrow. So then the story goes out tomorrow, but like, you know, I had to have some sort of, you know, parent-teacher conference with my kid in the morning. So the story eventually goes <laughs> out at like three o'clock in the afternoon. Well, there's no strategy to that, but I think a lot of people read in, and in fact, you see it all the time on Twitter after stories I've broken. Why did this story come out when it did? Like, there's way yeah. less into that than you think, almost all the time. 
Like the story went out when it did <laughs> because like I got around to writing it when I did and I met with the right yeah. person at the right time. Uh, that I would say 80% of the stories fall into that bucket and 20% of the stories fall into there's some sort of reason for why the story is going out right now. Interesting. Do the from your perspective generally do the players in the stories understand all of this coded language as well um like let's let's take yahoo verizon for example which i I know you spent a ton of time on that story you know byline comes out and say you know on on one of the pieces of information and let's say it's a critical story um and the Verizon reporter is no, is you know first on the byline. Does Yahoo that do people at Yahoo then understand that means that okay, like this information is probably coming from uh, from Verizon, or or so, is this uh, is this kind of you know the the backroom baseball? <laughs> so it depends on who at Yahoo you're talking about. So your general CEO or or CFO or board member has no idea by and large. So they rely on their own internal media relations or in the case of an M&A deal, they actually hire outside PR firms. And these people absolutely uh. know. In fact, many of them are former mm. journalists. So they are hired specifically to help companies figure out a where the information's coming from and then b to sort of craft the story and to work with reporters so all the m a reporters know the major external pr firms that are hired on deals very well we speak to them all the time so there the, the companies are called there's one that's called brunswick there's one that's called sard verbinen there's one that's called joel frank there's one that's called abernathy mcgregor there's a handful of other ones that but th- those are the major ones that are hired specifically to deal with M&A transactions. So when one company decides it's going to sell itself or is engaged in a sales process, they then hire one of these external firms. And sort of the PR at that point is then pushed in their direction. So uh, in in many cases, you actually stop dealing with the company directly. Um, And then you, you sort of start dealing with uh, the PR firm. So, for instance, we, you know, in Yahoo's case, Yahoo had a pre-existing relationship with Brunswick, but a lot of the communication, you know, trying to figure out if stuff was right or not, ends up going through Brunswick rather than Yahoo. The Yahoo uh, internal PR system also is still uh, a method of getting at what information is right and wrong, and they were certainly still involved in that process. But it really does depend on how sophisticated the company is, uh, whether or not they keep the PR internally or sort of hand it off externally. That's really interesting. I, it, it sort of leads me to start thinking about your your week and your day. How do you decide you know, what you're going to chase down and when you're going to do sort of long lead things where you should be aggressively trying to get this, this launch or this coffee set up? And how do you decide, hey, this is the, the panic button? And then in terms of amount of media created, like how many stories do you write a week? You do one podcast a week. What's the total amount of media that you create? So on a given week, I'd say I probably write two to three stories on average. Uh, there's certainly no quota uh, for that. Uh, in terms of what I'm focusing on, I have a chase list that I keep for myself that is built on sort of a running list of tips that I've gotten from everyone I speak with. Uh, so that runs the gamut of uh, company executives, uh, company corporate development type people, bankers, lawyers, yep. board members, uh, consultants that are hired by some of these companies, private equity firms, um, PR people. Uh, 
I'm sure there's a few other people that are in there uh, in that mix at all. But those are the general people that I'm meeting with that are at the level that they'd actually know sort of what's going on. Uh, that's sort of my rotating cast of characters that I'm meeting with on a given day. Then when I have to sort of narrow in on something, so you know, sometimes these sales processes I'm coming up with purely out of the blue. Uh, and so, you know, nothing had been reported on this, and then suddenly I'm able to break a story, and now, and now there's a whole circus around it. So, one of the stories I broke was Verizon um, was actually uh, had started talks and was interested in buying AOL. So this was before the Yahoo thing. So that was yep. a story that sort before, of yep. there was no narrative around that, and then. Uh, my colleague Scott Moritz and I broke that story, and now all of a sudden it's sort of out there. So now everyone's chasing it. For the Yahoo story, you know, Yahoo eventually decided like they would go public with that and sort of admitted that they were going to sell the company. So then like the whole <laughs> the whole world is on the Yahoo story, and then it's at the so 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 it then becomes very high profile for me. So to, to your question about what to chase, because now I know that that is going to be a really competitive story, and I know that Yahoo is a big enough company that like everybody's going to care about that. So I'm going to pay more attention to breaking a Yahoo story than any of the sort of you know deals of lesser significance, either by name recognition or by size that may come along that's yep. still sort of technically under my umbrella beat of all technology, media, and telecom companies, which is my beat. At Bloomberg. So, uh, you know, I may let a three or four billion dollar deal pass without really chasing it if I'm close to breaking some news, even if it's just incremental news on Yahoo, because I know it's going to get a lot more readership uh, and it's going to get a lot more attention both internally and externally. Now, beyond name recognition, the other general metric I use is size. So, I'm trying to, you know, at Bloomberg, we sort of pride ourselves on breaking the biggest deals. Um, so if if I can break a $15 billion deal, that's going to be a lot more important to me than breaking a $1 billion deal. And really, we don't even pay attention to deals that are under $1 billion uh, unless they come with some big name recognition. So maybe a company used to be yeah. worth a lot more, and now they aren't anymore, or mm. for some other reason, you know, a lot of people happen to know this company because they're consumer-facing or whatever it may be. So you're saying if we've got some small M and A that we want to sweep under the rug, just wait till Verizon's gonna pull a pull an acquisition and then then do it then. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> getting getting buried. Yeah, wait until Verizon's going to do an acquisition on a Friday and then right, do it right, on right. a Friday. Take it out yeah. with the trash. <laughs> right. So this leads to a <laughs> this leads to a, a um, point that David and I had been talking about since kind of a couple of years ago before we were doing acquired. And we were thinking about, you know, if we were going to do a podcast, maybe this would be an interesting uh, area to go after because it sure seems like nobody talks about these deals after they're done. People talk about them when they're announced. People talk about them when um, they close. But there's never this like retrospective or like, did that actually go well? Or trying to understand, um, you know, what what trends were where uh, uh, can we extrapolate from these deals that have gone well, and, and hence us starting this podcast? Um, why is that, in your opinion? Like, wh- why do we not see this sort of coverage later on beyond just the fact that you know the, um, that information is less actionable at that point? So one of the reasons is it's much harder. It's much harder to 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 write a good comprehensive story on that, um, and it's it, it would necessarily be sort of a featurey type story because you'd really have to dig in uh, and and sort of start at the beginning. Look, you guys do a good job of it on this podcast, but uh, if, from a reporter's standpoint, we need to decide, do I want to 
spend the work on sort of figuring out exactly how good this acquisition was from a culture standpoint, from a financial standpoint. Uh, you know, I have to go back. I have to figure out, uh, you know, it, it sort of exactly how this acquisition may have been uh, profitable or unprofitable. A lot of times the numbers are masked because once a big company buys a little company, they don't necessarily need to break out all of the, all of the numbers that used to be publicly yep, available yeah. when that first company was that's, public. We joke on the show that that's we joke on this show. That's why we love lawsuits, <laughs> right? Exactly <laughs> because we get to dig into them. Exactly, the numbers all of a sudden become uh, become public or, or other things that were were hidden for sure. Um, but I mean, the biggest reason is what you said that it, that it's not actionable. the 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 main reason is that my incentive here, particularly at Bloomberg, uh, is to move markets. I mean, it's something that is very well known here. Like the the goal is to provide value to a Bloomberg subscriber that's trading on information. So at Bloomberg, it's very cut and dry, which is like if you have the time, you know, 80% of your day should be trying to break news on live deals. Then the other 20%, I mean, these are just made up numbers, but I'm saying whatever. The other 20% is sort of your own time. So if if I wanted to write a story like it's that, your Google time, right? It's Google time, exactly. That's right. It's free, you know, free project, uh, uh, Google X or whatever they call it at Google. Um, yeah. So so then it's up to me uh, on what to do. So look, we are. This isn't quite what you guys do in the podcast, but we, we did decide as a team that we're going to take on a project for next year where we do oral histories of certain deals. So that's something you can expect mm. for Bloomberg. So we will go back in time and, to, and, and and talk to the people that were involved, let's say, 10 years ago. I think we're going to try to do them around like acquisitions uh, or anniversaries of acquisitions. Um, so we're going to go back and talk to the people that were involved and ask them why they did this, what they were thinking at the time. Um, it won't yeah. really be a look at sort of how successful or unsuccessful uh, the acquisition was so that's not quite what you're getting at. Um, those really, uh, you know, are, are sort of what I read in Harvard case studies, typically uh, Harvard Business School case studies at, at business school. Um, so for people that have actually gone to business school, I think you do see that a lot of the time. But those are not, uh, you know, publicly available in general for people. So you really don't see that very much. So one of the reasons, yeah, is it's not actionable, and the other reason is that it's just sort of hard to do it given the fact that you have mandates to do other things. Yeah, it's a little bit like um it's a, it's like, you know, getting news on Facebook versus, you know, reading articles on Medium or something like that or you know or uh or you know or longreads.com or something like, you know, it's the um you want the dopamine like the the dopamine hits of and which for you guys is moving markets and for the news industry like there's a lot more um in aggregate, there is a lot more dollars and value and buzz in that than there is on the, you know, the the hard going back and eating, you know, like a whole plate full of vegetables. <laughs> I, I I do think that uh, another part of it is that general the general public really just wants to know the headline information. So you know what company is buying what company and how much is it, and then like they sort of move on. So that's how that's how the news. I mean, all the news cycle works like that mm-hmm. in 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 all forms and fashions of life. What's the headline news? Okay, I got it. We'll just move on. That's sort of what our culture is like now. So even in in, in what you're talking about, which is like, was an acquisition successful or not? You know, I, almost all I want to know it can be sort of told on a gut level. So like, have I read? how successful Facebook buying Instagram was, like, 
No. Like, do I know that Facebook buying Instagram was really successful? Yeah, I do. I, I, I'd like to know maybe how successful it was, but like once I know how much money Facebook gained from Instagram, which right. would require some analysis, like that's about all I need to know. You know, I don't really need to like read <laughs> yeah. the, the sort of the why behind that. People that are really involved in this stuff and do it for a living, I'm sure would. But, you know, that then, then all of a sudden now you're dealing with sort of a new form of media, which is like, all right, well, if I'm only yeah. writing something to the people that are really involved in this, now I'm almost working for a trade publication rather than the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg. So I'm going to write something that's yep. really focused on from an audience perspective about who I'm writing for. Yeah, I mean, that's something we think about with this show all the time. We, David and I have looked at our numbers. Um, we probably had three sort of check-ins since we started the show trying to figure out, okay, wh- what's the future of this thing? You know, this is like a side project for both of us. And, um, you know, you start looking around at other technology podcasts like, whoa, how, how big could it get? But you're right. It's it's super niche. It's this thing that it's people that are in the M and A world or in startups and hope to one day be in the M and A world. And uh, you know that that's got that's got a ceiling. And I think you talking about the fact that um, it kind of fits under that moniker of trade publication is is the best way to succinctly put it that I've heard yet. Yeah. Um. It's something that I think about too for my podcast, which is, I mean, it's an M and A podcast. So I, you know, I think to myself, like, all right, well, people that have some sort of demonstrated interest in M and A, which pretty much means you work in the business, will listen to this. And how do I, how do I get out of the, that box? How, how do I grow an audience for my podcast too? So just, just this past week's episode is Rob Kindler, who's the head of M&A at Morgan Stanley, global head of M&A, and his brother awesome. is a stand-up comedian, Andy Kindler. So I had them both on the show. So I, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to figure out ways myself of like, all right, well, maybe Andy Kindler fans will listen to this thing, and it's not just the M&A mm. crowd. And like I've got to think to myself, how do I grow the audience here so that it's not just sort of the standard fare of people that work you know, and sort of live and breathe this industry? Well, I can I can tell you that um, I think your your idea um, to do the uh, what, what you and the team have decided to do with kind of more of the feature piece around anniversaries, um, just looking at at what people have told us about this show has has a lot of merit because when we do certain episodes, for example, the the Snapchat and Facebook acquisition that wasn't episode that has a tremendous backstory and there's drama and there's it it you know listening to David run through the acquisition history and facts there is is enjoyable in its own right just as a form of entertainment so i think that um there have been a few instances where we had an, a a more dramatic uh history reading there and that is something that we continually have people tell us, you know, I actually am not that interested in M&A, but I listened to that episode specifically because my friend told me it was interesting and I loved hearing that story. Yeah, that that is absolutely something we found on and been spot on on, on this show. And our listeners can tell us, you know, if, if you disagree, but I, I doubt <laughs> you will. Like people listen to us for the stories, uh, you know, and, and that's like that's what's so interesting that we found is this difference between, you know, news versus stories versus analysis and getting that balance right you know um obviously our our listener base and potential listener base is much smaller than than bloomberg's but um but i find it fascinating like how those those three pillars of what's going on uh you know vary by by medium yeah my idea for the or i don't know if i should give this away because like if my competitors at the wall street journal are, are listening they'll take the idea but i'll <laughs> I'll, I'll at least tease you guys that it, it's 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 sort of what you're hinting at where that there is sort of an anniversary coming up of a counterfactual, a deal that did not happen. So that is what that's sort of what the oral history mm, yeah. that I'm thinking of doing is to talk to the people yeah. that were involved and sort of why it didn't happen yeah. and like what the world would have looked like if it, oh, if so it did. So cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I mean. I think I think thus far our latest episode on Android is 
probably on track to eclipse this, but um, I think our most popular episode is Snapchat. Uh, it's neck to neck with LinkedIn because we did yeah. that one. Like that was the first time that you know, not that we were anywhere close to breaking news there, but it, it was still at the top of the news cycle when we released that episode. So yeah. I think it was a lot of people asking their friends, "What do you think of this LinkedIn thing?" And they we had already put up an episode, so people could say, "You really should listen to that this podcast yeah. episode to hear about it." Um, but that was like a that was like a spike when it was relevant in the news. But Snapchat just keeps getting tons of downloads. And I think it's because of this, like, oh, it's this anti-history, you know, like what what the world could have been if Snapchat were part of Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I also I think a lot of people are simply just fascinated with Snapchat. I, I know I am in, in part because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm 34 years old and like I can't figure out how to use Snapchat. Like so I it's the first like company that has a product <laughs> where I'm like I am aged out of this at this point. Like I, I don't know what uh, this thing is. It's depressing. It's really not intuitive to me. I don't fully understand why it's popular. That said, I do see uh sort of a Snapchat model here that where I feel like other <laughs> other companies are we're all sort of moving towards something. You know, I just actually um we, we, we just met with uh, the whole uh, executive team at, at Line, the Japanese company that oh, does wow, its messenger yeah. service. Uh, and they were sort of explaining to us how uh, in Japan, uh, Line and some other companies have sort of taken the path of having your whole ecosystem done through its platform. So on Line – you know, you can order so a cab through system. line. You can, you basically, yeah, you you order your meals through line. So all of these other independent apps in this country are sort of housed within one ecosystem with line. And you can see Snapchat developing into that. Certainly Facebook is trying, but, you know, Facebook Messenger is still sort of very much independent of Facebook and sort of that your core Facebook, your newsfeed, your pictures, it's not quite all lined up in the same sort of bubble ecosystem. Obviously, like I think even the new iOS 10 for Apple, you're sort of seeing yep. things move in this direction a little bit. But, you know, there's it, an it, app store baked into iMessages. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think Snapchat has it right where they've realized, oh, this sort of, you know, housing form of chat and, and, and general communication can also be used to do other things. One of the questions we were going to ask you is, uh, you know, a section we always do on the show is tech trends and, you know, what this deal represents in tech trends. And I I think that's a perfect one of, you know, that we were going to ask you, like, what tech trends do you see, you know, covering the landscape um, that are that are coming? And and absolutely how messaging like you can look to Asia and see how messaging has evolved into this operating system there. Um, And then the question, I think, is like, is is and if so if so when will that start to be the reality you know in the u.s as well um major major wave that's happening in asia and and the question is is that coming here to the u.s too Uh, i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this one because here's a here's a tech trend that has not happened yet but i'm I want so before I was an M and A reporter at Bloomberg, I covered media for three years, and then I transitioned into this role of covering all technology, oh, media, and television. Covering M&A. media at a media organization is like the ultimate neighbor. For sure, ab- <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> totally right. Look, you're you're around a lot of people that sort of came from organizations that you're covering from too. So it's sort of like uh, you know, oh, like I need like a Time Inc. source. It's like, well, like just walk three rows down, and like that guy used to be the managing editor at Time, that type of thing. Uh, so. Here, here's my question to you. Uh, we have seen the way a lot of uh, 
consumerish media tech companies are valued uh, for years now has been based on users, whether it's MAUs uh, or some other form of just user growth. That has been the main way that a lot of these media-ish companies have been valued. But at some point, and we're already seeing it with some, like let's say Twitter, uh, the growth stalls. But there's still value to these products. But the way Wall Street has valued them, basically there just seems to be a cap. And then they 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 may turn into sort of zombie-like companies because the user growth isn't there and they're not making any money. So what's the way out? Well, right now the answer seems to be like they just sort of give up or sell. But I wonder – if one day we see some of these user these media tech media companies that have always been based on users if they can somehow formulate a new way of generating revenue through some degree of subscription which we have not seen so you know twitter has never <laughs> uh, thrown out a subscription fee certainly facebook hasn't and, they, and they've never wanted to because the way wall street has valued them that would actually be sort of anathema to what they're going for but you know, at one point, we, but 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 we have seen among more traditional media companies that have gone online, they have transitioned to something that you would call a subscription model, which is the paywall. So you now have to subscribe to the New York Times or subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. So is it just a matter of time before this sort of traditional media uh, that has gone online meets the new media that has not done this? And do we see some of these older new media companies go subscription? Well, uh, Alex, I think uh, you're forgetting about the vibrant community over at app.net, the uh, subscription-only Twitter. <laughs> uh, that is a blast from the past, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so yeah. I, you know, I look at this as a... Um, I think the reason why there is, is a little bit of success with paywalls at publications and why I think that would be the nail in the coffin for any any form of kind of like new media that involves, uh, let's call it social media, is that traditional media doesn't require network effects. And the, you know, let's say Twitter, for example, absolutely does. And, and as soon as um, people are, uh, you know, my sources are no longer on Twitter, like the people that I want to be following because they decided not to subscribe, it's less valuable for me. And then I don't get that content. So I'm incentivized not to subscribe. And I think that there's this like unidirectional value creation that happens from traditional media companies to their readers. And there's this like massively bi-directional interconnected web on social media where um, if, if people start falling out of the ecosystem, you know, then everybody else is less incentivized to play to to pay also isn't it possible though that some of these systems become so sticky and uh, invaluable to our life that if you present people with the option of having to pay some sort of really small micro payment which you can then slowly move up over time that people wouldn't just drop out hmm. if yeah. you had to pay a penny I to stay on facebook would you do that? I mean, all, that's a lot of pennies. All, all, yeah. all, all, my whole life's on Facebook. All, all my pictures are on Facebook. Well, it's interesting. WhatsApp, you know, took this took this approach. Uh, that is true. Uh, that you know, it was a dollar a year to use, to and, use and free for the first year, crucially yeah, free right? for the first so. year, and then a dollar a year. Um, I, I think uh, it's super interesting what you're saying. I think well. <laughs> The cynic in me says, Alex, come on, that would require actual creativity. And, you know, that would be <laughs> <Right. laughs> Silicon Valley is create, creative on the surface. But, you know, <laughs> well, the, well, I mean, I, th I think the more like the, the cynic in me says people don't pay for things and people especially don't pay for um, 
well, I guess I was going to say people don't pay for like entertainment. People don't pay for websites, but. Well, here's why I think you could do it, though. But but of, co- um, of, of course they do pay for entertainment. They pay for TV, for instance. Now, I mean, that, yeah, that's eroding Netflix, a little bit, true. but that's still like 100 yep. million people that pay for TV yep. in this country. Ooh, would they do a rev share? Like, could you see Twitter influencers getting paid out uh, a, a percentage of, for of producing their followers? The content? Yeah, well, Ben, I mean, the, the crux of the point that Ben's bringing up is um, unlike a... Wall Street Journal or a Bloomberg or New York Times, um, you know, Twitter uh, and Facebook don't pay their reporters to generate content. It's it's dependent on people being on the system or even like YouTube. Yeah, you, that's actually the, the the interesting middle ground. Well, YouTube here is, does pay people. is YouTube right? So they yeah. they pay their high end content creators and they have a subscription service that's called right. YouTube Red. Yeah, yeah. Um, but where I think this could work, I actually think Bloomberg is could be a really interesting model here. Um, that people haven't really tried in this area in, in tech um, is is you guys just like we were talking about in the beginning of the show. You monetize the the information and the meaning of what you do um, and sell that as a very very expensive subscription to people who care a lot about that. Um, and yet, for Ben and me, we go to Bloomberg.com and get your news and read your reporting for free um it would be super interesting you know twitter especially i think could do that if they made the right investments like what is the data that in aggregate is generated from twitter from the fire hose quote unquote that is very valuable to people um you know and it's interesting like there is clearly demand for this there are third-party companies that do this there's data sift um there was oh the company topsy that apple bought Mm -hmm. um and there are a few others uh but obviously, as a third party, like you're not going to be able to do that anywhere near as well as Twitter itself could. Um, there yeah. could be a huge latent revenue stream. There. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, obviously, you, what the 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 big fear there is, you don't want to um, disincentivize your power users from using Twitter. So it needs to be something where it's very purely additive for them to actually pay to, for yeah. whatever it is that they're getting, rather than uh, you mm-hmm. know, sort of. Have them feel like they're targeted to pay more money, right? Um, Does Bloomberg use paywalls at all? We don't. We don't because we have the terminal. So we we've decided that we're not. Now again, that 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 is a discussion that I know has happened here um, before. The sort of the the idea of should we use a paywall? So the decision so far uh, has been no because we sort of have this built-in paywall in our system. Um, But you know, one day I suppose that could change. Super. It's it's uh, you're bringing me back here to my to my days at at the journal and in media and <laughs> I'm not. They're very happy memories in one regard, but uh, on the look, other hand, uh, business models of media are tough. <laughs> look, it's this. The, I you know we're talking about Twitter or sort of social media in general, and and one point that I that I do want to make here, which again sort of it it speaks to an issue that we have sidestepped, but the issue still remains, which is. Uh, as a reporter now, I no longer really if, – if I have a reputation of being right, I actually don't really need Bloomberg's infrastructure anymore to move mm-hmm. markets. So there, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll give you a real-world example, which is when Comcast acquired Time Warner Cable, uh, yeah. I, I got that information at like 9.30 at night uh, and – I had it sourced. I, 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 we, we, we were good. I knew I was 100% right. 
but it was 9.30 at night. And the Bloomberg infrastructure, sort of among among like my editors, yeah. like no one was at work. They're all at home. <laughs> so I had to sort of figure out, and I was also sort of new to this role. So I had to figure out like how do I alert <laughs> the right people here to get them all online so that they can approve my sources so that we can actually write this thing. And not only do the sources have to be approved, but then I have to write four paragraphs, an editor needs to read those four paragraphs, an editor then needs to queue up headlines, we need to make the decision to redhead, as I talked about before, which of course, that requires sort of a new level of authority. So in the amount of time that it took for me to figure out all of the different levers that needed to be pulled, the right people to contact, the phone calls to be made that first weren't answered and then were, in that amount of time, David Faber, who at CNBC, got the news and just sent out a tweet. And he broke the story on Twitter, uh, uh, which CNBC wow. sort of allowed him to do. Well, I, I had the story at least 42 minutes before he did because he just broke wow. it instantly. So, you know, it made me think like Twitter has sort of upended this. Like, I don't need Bloomberg anymore. <laughs> like, I could have broke this thing on my yeah. own. But, 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 you know, that's going to be so frustrating. That's like as a venture capitalist when you miss investing, when you pass on Facebook, you know? <laughs> right. But, but, but of course, I do need Bloomberg because they're paying my salary. So I would have to be a real entrepreneur right. and, be con- <laughs> and be confident enough that, like, right. I could sort of start my own yeah. thing on my own, uh, you know, and just sort of well, use my own the channels. Of, uh, you have the example, right, of, of, you know, Kara Swisher and, uh, and, 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 and Walt at, at uh, Recode, you know, who have done this. Um, but still, even so, I mean, they they got acquired by by Vox. Um, well, well, but, well, exactly, and 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 they make their money in part through their conferences business. The better right, example exactly. might, might might be the information, which is Jessica Lessons, yep. uh, which charges. Yep. I mean, they so they they are a subscription media model, like we were talking about. They charge mm-hmm. you know several hundred dollars per year for their information. Now, and I don't know exactly how successful they've been at getting people to pay for their information, but. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it, it, it's it's not sort of a slam dunk here. Yeah. Obviously, like Bloomberg has enough else going for it that uh, like I'm not like you know if if you're listening to this, bosses, I'm not leaving. What you can't have as an independent though, and this is like the ultimate uh, tech trend for me is um, they don't have the redhead, right? Like they don't have the the customer relationship and proprietary data channel to your customer, you know, the financial traders, right? Like, or whoever the equivalent is in whatever industry. Um, if you control that, you, you can... Well, but all you need is that to initially build the trust. And now that Alex has that, uh, if Alex were to tweet, I would suspect that he right. would be able to move markets on his own. This is it why would Twitter needs it, to build the redhead. <laughs> in fact, there was one time several years ago, I think it was... I think it was a Shutterfly being for sale, though that might not be right. But there was one instance several years ago where uh, I thought that we had – this actually changed Bloomberg's tweeting policies, this one mistake I made, where I I thought the story had gone out. Uh, and tweeted something and actually front run my own story and and I and so I was a real life test case where I did move markets my my tweet was picked up by traders and the stock moved like five percent because I said Shutterfly had <laughs> hired you know Catalyst to sell themselves or whoever it was wow uh, and then and then we realized the story hadn't gone out we immediately pushed out the story at that point. Uh, but you know there was like nine seconds of confusion there uh, where I had basically beat my own story and then we and then we re. We, we sort of huddled up as an organization and we were like, okay, from now on, Bloomberg reporters can't tweet out stories until 
uh, the story has a link involved to it so that we're sure uh, the story has sure has, has gone out to the world now we, again we've we've even amended that policy by now we have a link that only terminal subscribers can see uh, so that we can tweet out with hmm, this link, wow. and then you can. Uh, uh, so, so the normal web link doesn't go out still until 15 minutes after the fact. But we keep sort of coming up with like uh, you know little incremental amendments to this in order to sort of try to keep up oh, with man. like the general world of social media with this built-in 15-minute uh, you know difference. That, and, and I imagine that difference. if I speak to you next year or two years from now, like the rules will have changed again. Mm-hmm. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep. Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. One quick topic we wanted to cover before we move into um, follow-ups and carve-outs uh, is uh, any advice. You know, so many of our listeners are work at startups, are entrepreneurs, are aspiring entrepreneurs. Um, and maybe this is earlier in the life cycle than where you play of companies, but... Um, the press for startups is like such a black box. Like if I'm a startup CEO or founder and I just have no idea how you work, I have no idea how to get in touch with you. Should I, should I invest in building relationships? Any thoughts from your end being on that side of the table of, you know, how entrepreneurs can best interact with you? Well, you absolutely should try to build a relationship. Um, But the way you should try to build a relationship is to know what our job is. So, and that very much depends on who you build the relationship with. So, there certain outlets yeah. are going to cover startups much more close, closely than others. So, you know, Bloomberg plays in sort of the the big game land, where like we're going to write a lot of stories about Uber, but like we're not going to write any stories about your piddling, you know, million dollar valuation yeah. startup at this point. You're not covering Series A funding announcements. No, 
No, but you know, TechCrunch is or like whoever whoever it might be that's sort of covering yep. that at that level. Uh, so so yes, build a relationship with a Bloomberg reporter, but don't expect us to sort of curry you favor uh, and and write about your startup that like nobody knows because we just don't do that here. Like it's just we don't have the audience for it. Uh, so so know where we're coming from. It's not personal. It's just that like our editors are not going to allow us to write that story. However, you know yeah. the the day that you guys you know all of a sudden you've you've put out a series B, series C, series D, and now like you're in you know uh, f- you know almost unicorn territory or unicorn territory, then yeah, like it's good that you put in the time to make a relationship with the reporter because now that your company is big enough to write about, like now you're probably going to get a more favorable story because you've spent the time having some lunches and coffee and you've built a relationship with the reporter and the reporter knows that he can go to you for access. You have to remember where the reporter is coming from too. What we want is exclusive information. That's what we want. This happens all the time with smaller M&A deals with me that are sort of pitched at me. And like if if a deal sort of with two companies that like no one's really ever heard of and it's right on that billion dollar line, like we might cover it or we might not. If you give us the information exclusively, if this is a Bloomberg scoop, we'll cover it. If you wait and put out some sort of press release or you give it to somebody else first – like we're not going to cover it. It doesn't give us any value. So you need to figure out. You, you and this is maybe the best piece of advice I can give to an entrepreneur that wants to build a relationship with the press. Ask the reporter what matters to them, and then figure out a way that you can give the reporter what matters to them. So for Bloomberg, it's exclusive information. For somebody else, maybe it's uh, you know I don't know uh, a sit down interview with the CEO or whatever it may be. But figure out what it is yeah. that the that the reporter wants and and whatever that. Is, is will be dictated by what the organization finds meaningful. And then, you know, uh, down the road, if you're able to sort of cash in on that, then I think you'll get sort of the positive result you're looking for from the press. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's probably always exclusive information, but but it's what type of exclusive information. For exactly. you, it's, you know, Exa- it's a deal. For it, another type of organization, it's a sit-down interview. That's, but, yeah. that, that's so right, David. And that's, and that's, I think, the important part to make, which is <clears throat> in many ways – you can sort of give out eight different scoops on the same story, you know, just sort of piecemeal your information and give one person one piece of exclusive information and give another press outlet another, uh, you know, piece of exclusive information. And then, you know, recode the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times and Bloomberg can all sort of say that they had scoops. And because you've sort of divvied out the information, you've now gotten seven different stories instead of one with six others ignoring you. (laughs) <laughs> love it uh, in vc we call that a party round <laughs> right exactly <laughs> yeah um this has been awesome uh i've had so much fun with this uh like i said reliving my old uh my old glory days in the in the media and tech press how, but, how, um, how, how long were you at the journal david uh i was there for for just a year uh so a sh- very short stint um but uh uh so I can't speak uh, as any sort of expert, but it was a lot of fun. I think I was the youngest person there by about 30 years. Right, naturally. Yes. Yeah. So now you'd only be the youngest person <laughs> by what, 25 years or whatever, maybe. 20, 20 yeah. years. 20 yeah, years. Right. Yeah, exactly. A yeah. um, couple quick follow-ups. And this will be fun having Alex on the show here. Uh, yeah. So we do. Um, we have three quick sections to wrap up the show. One is follow-ups on things that have happened with with deals we've covered um, in past episodes, uh, two is hot takes, which are any M and A deals that have happened in the last couple of weeks. So we do a 
30 seconds or less quick analysis of um and then three is carve outs which are fun unrelated items we talk about um but uh, alex is probably up on a lot of this stuff uh so feel free to chime in um if you uh if you like or or ben and i will lead but um but any any thoughts please chime in um first follow-up we have is instagram uh, <laughs> Alex, you were joking about, you know, yeah, Instagram is probably good. I have no idea how good it is. The, the, a, the a plus of Instagram keeps on rolling. It is our, on this show, Instagram is our benchmark for the best deal, the, the highest rated deal that we have ever had on this show. Um, so they announced this week that they now have, uh, we, we've talked in the past with follow-ups about user numbers. Uh, also going back to our conversation, Alex, that we just had on social media and uh, aggregating users and the value of users. They announced this week uh, that they have 500,000, more than 500,000 active advertisers. So separate advertisers, organizations, buying ads on Instagram over 500,000. That's up from 200,000 in February. Yeah, I mean, any by... Um it's it's interesting because advertisers are aware the revenue comes from, so it's interesting to look at that. But just by looking at the growth of that, I mean, it's been what eight, eight months since February, yeah. and and seeing Less, you know, yeah. Instagram's ad program is is uh, what like two three years old now. So seeing like in in eight months to to grow that much, um, probably most thankfully due to the fact that the the ad um, the advertiser portals are integrated. If you're going and you're With an Facebook. advertiser that already is using. Um, Facebook, you check a box, upload some different assets, and boom, now you have an Instagram ad. Um, they've really, like, talk, talk about synergies. They've really leveraged uh, their, their relationship and the tools that they have for Facebook advertisers to, to have a whole new, you know, incredible growth channel there with Instagram. Yep. Next one? Next one we have real quick uh, is Amazon. Uh, obviously, Amazon wasn't acquired, but has been an acquirer on several companies we've talked about and reference a lot. Uh just today, uh, share price hit eight hundred bucks a share. <laughs> ben, when are you, you're, you're trying to time the market on buying Amazon, uh, pro- I can tell you, just give up. Property not values, give a, not property, that we give investment advice on this show. <laughs> yeah, property values in Seattle are now at an all time high. Uh, the, the 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 Amazonification of of Seattle is something really incredible to watch, and uh, the the economic growth in the region from this company starting you know right in the center of the city and and it, kind of exploding outwards and is now in three or four separate neighbor neighborhoods overtaking downtown um you know we've talked a lot about their their strategy before i think um i, I couldn't be more bullish i still am stupidly trying to time the market and wait for uh, investors to cool a little bit so i can get in but it, i continue to say i should just buy in now and for the investors on the show not advice but uh, if you are looking for a derivative way to 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 play the amazon story you should invest in seattle real estate <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, um hot take we only have one this week real quick uh, a small deal um but interesting one uh relevant to our episode on ways and discussion of the future of uh automotive and transportation and technology is uh ford buying chariot yeah, this one's interesting to me. So Chariot is basically um, the the public bus system, but better and with fewer stops and subscription based. I believe it was only in San Francisco. I believe it was only in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, and you pay. I think it's like a hundred hundred bucks or something, and you get access to uh, um, to these you know great buses that pick you up at a shuttles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, as far as Ford breaking into 
um, you know, this trend of uh, service-based or subscription-based car ownership or self-driving cars, you know, transportation is changing in a lot of ways. This doesn't like seem that interesting to me. Like it seems like there was a lot more things they could have bought that would have signaled to me, oh, they're they're doing something, um, you know, really transformative. And and here, I'm not totally sure what the play is. Yeah, I'm not either. It was a small deal, but but uh, definitely, you know, we saw GM by Cruise earlier this year, which uh, you know, Cruise that game changing, right? Like you drop this thing on the top of your car and it can become self driving. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Bloomberg probably covered that deal. <laughs> probably not Chariot. Yeah, we're uh, we're obsessed actually, with yeah. this sort of self driving car, and you know that's why they the sort of the you know we decided to redhead that Apple McLaren story, even when McLaren later came out and denied it. Which, by the way, uh, as sort of an aside topic, they didn't have to deny that. So I was a little. I don't know why they publicly denied it because based on our sourcing, they had at least had conversations with Apple. They they phrased that we're not in talks right now. Um, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not really sure why they denied it rather than just stayed silent. But whatever, I'm sure they had their own reasoning for, for doing that. Um, and it was interesting. Did it did it positively affect them? Because then the rumors seriously negatively affected Apple stock. So, you know, you never know in these cases, like because it seriously negatively affected Apple stock, that may have been why they came out and denied it. Apple may have gone to them and said, please do this. Uh, Apple, I can tell you hmm. from a reporter uh. standpoint, is like... Uh, sort of one of the few companies that acts as like the mafia. I mean, the 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 amount of fear <laughs> that they They'll put into leg. other. Co- I I heavily covered uh, when Apple was seriously considering coming out with their own TV product back in I want to say 2013, mm. 2014, and they were in. I was covering media then, so they were in discussions with Comcast and Time Warner Cable and other companies. Uh, to potentially figure out if they wanted to um, sort of own the programming themselves or just sort of be uh, like a partner with the cable companies and use their programming. And it was so difficult to get information from the media companies because they basically said, like, Apple told us not to say anything. And you just, that was, I had never heard that from any other company <laughs> that these, that, that, that the company had done business with. Like, you Apple's know? not your boss. They like. were, exactly. They were, they were free to talk about every other company they did business with, but Apple. But it was like, no, no, no. Like, you know, we, we can't, I think Steve Jobs was still alive then too. So like maybe it was a Steve uh, yeah, Jobs thing. Katie Cotton was their head of PR, and apparently, you know, that was much, much tighter back in that era than, right, than nowadays. Right. I'll throw in one more uh, hot take for you guys, which is just I'm curious to see Sweet. what happens with um, the the Yahoo sale to Verizon now that Yahoo has said that 500 million of their users uh, were breached in this big data breach from whatever oh, God, sort of sta- yeah. state-sponsored hacker, uh, you know, hacked into their system back in 2014. I don't know if this will have any sort of repercussion on the Verizon deal, but already <laughs> you're starting to hear sort of outsider speculation that, uh, you know, if if this does turn out to be a big deal, maybe Verizon would push to try to uh, alter the price. Uh, of the deal, okay, yeah. hmm. uh, so I don't know. I, you hmm. know, a lot of that stuff will will certainly come out in the next you know days, weeks, months. Interesting. Do you know if that's precedented to alter the the price based on something like this, or any event oh, in I general? Mean, it definitely has the potential to be materially adverse. Which I presume all the contracts. Uh, in another former life, I was an investment banker, and uh, <laughs> yeah, all the um, all the merger agreements and stuff will until closed will have. Uh, um, that's right. Contingencies and and max material adverse uh, clauses. That's uh, right. I think yeah. this would definitely fall into that. 
Yeah. Mm. I don't know enough to speculate, but, um, but that, you know, if, if the breach is as bad as it sounds like it could be, um, you know, I mean, you're talking, wasn't that long ago that the Sony hack happened and like the, the amount of value destroyed at that company and costs they had to incur is Mm -hmm. definitely material. Um, right. So who knows this apparently happened in 2014 and like, I don't know what has been done with it since. So like, maybe that would suggest that it's not that material, but I don't know. Obviously Verizon's going to want to look into the details of this. So that might be something to keep an eye out on. We will, we will be on the case when it does. Um, all right, carve outs, Ben, what you got? So my carve out, um, carve outs for, for new listeners is a thing that we do that is a book or a piece of media that we've consumed that may or may not be um, related to the, the topic of this podcast. And um, a lot of times I'll, I'll give an article or something that gave me pause and um, was something that was, uh, I, I liked reflecting on or might be more philosophical or any of those things. Um, this, one, this time I'm going kind of totally out there. There's a little recap video from Burning Man. Um, on Vimeo by user Phil of Drones. And it is one of the most um, just beautiful visual uh, captures of any real life event I've ever seen. It is, it's a ton of drone footage. It's a lot of like maybe steady cam footage, but it's just this really tremendously beautiful uh, recap of, of Burning Man this year. And um, Burning Man, I think it gets bigger and bigger every year and more and more technology arrives there every year. So, you know, 10 years ago, it was something that you'd hear about, you wouldn't really get what it was and you couldn't really get much about it. And now, you know, people are still grappling with like, what the heck is this thing if you've never been, um, which, you know, I for the record, I've never been. Um, but uh um, now the the amount of media coming out of this where we're seeing people's just like incredible creations is is super cool. So um, we're going to drop the link in the show notes. It's uh, Burning Man 2016 by Phil of Drones on uh, on Vimeo. Go check it out. It's it's a super cool way to spend five minutes. Super cool. Um, mine uh, is a quick one this week. A uh, new book uh, that came out recently that I read uh, called Algorithms to Live By uh, by Brian Christian and Brian Christian and Tom Griffiths. This is a super fun book, quick read. Uh, it's about fundamental computer science algorithms like um, searching and sorting and scheduling and optimal stopping um, that you learn about in uh, you know your intro CS classes in college or in high school. Um, but then about like what those algorithms are for like lay people who aren't uh, CS folks, um, but how to apply them to your life. And it's super cool. It's like, how do you sort your closet based on optimal sorting <laughs> algorithms to how should you handle your email based on scheduling algorithms uh, to um, all sorts of stuff? How, sh- how should you decide when to uh, when uh, you found the right person to marry based on optimal stopping problems? Uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's very um, techie, but but written by from a humanities perspective. So um, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think I've got one. I, I wish I had the time to read books now. I have two kids under three, so like those days are. Uh, I, I assume they'll come you need back. A, you need optimization algorithms, right? Exactly. That's what I need. I need an raising children algorithm. and linear time. But but I will. I'll give you one um, because I thought it was very interesting. Which is um, uh, Ross Douthat wrote a column, an op-ed column for the New York Times, uh, talking about it's the headline was Clinton's Samantha B problem. And uh, it talks about how uh, late night talk show hosts uh, have um, sort of vehemently swung uh, to the left in this particular election. 
so now you know you have whereas even four years ago in sort of the Letterman Leno late night world, um, you know the, the, these guys were 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 Letterman I guess sort of tilted left. Leno was very middle of the road. Uh, but but you just other than maybe John Stewart occasionally, and even John Stewart would sort of pad his his criticism of of the right by saying, hey, look, you know, I'm a comedian first and, and you know, the, I, this, is the, this is a fake news show. Uh, you're no longer mm-hmm. seeing that. You're seeing John Oliver and Samantha Bee and Seth Meyers and uh, Trevor Noah and a lot of these sort of late night characters really swing hard to the left and basically, uh, you know, call out Donald Trump and Donald Trump supporters, uh, of, you know, as being bigoted and racist and 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 there's there's no sort of middle ground here and yet he says you juxtapose this to the general public where you know there's still a huge percentage of this country that votes republican and and yet there's a big mismatch now between what you see sort of on late night tv and sort of your your maybe a- random averagely you know average picked American that maybe is an independent or centrist or Republican, uh, and there's no real outlet on the late night spectrum for this. And you know what 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 he makes of this is sort of like we're basically he likens it to what we saw in the '60s and '70s, where the culture really dramatically shifted leftward, and yet we had Nixon, and then you know in 1980 yeah. we had Reagan, oh, wow. and so there was this sort wow. of mismatch between uh, the culture and the politics. And so he's sort of hinting at, are we going to see this again if Trump is elected where, you know, just the the, the sort, sort of your, your general entertainment culture is really out of whack with uh, your, your general politics in this country. So interesting read, I thought. It got a lot of criticism on Twitter, but I didn't think it was particularly deserved. Huh. Huh. Well, I'll definitely have to read it. Yeah, me too. Um there's uh, no matter what you think about this election, it has been a bonanza for the media industry covering it. <laughs> um, all awesome. right. Well, well, Alex, where can our listeners find you? Um, your podcast, your Twitter, uh, where do you want to send them? Yeah. Um, so uh, the podcast is called Deal of the Week. It's available on iTunes uh, or you can find it on Bloomberg.com. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Uh, I typically will tweet out the podcast. It's once a week. It's the episodes are about 25, 30 minutes. Um, so feel free to subscribe on iTunes. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. 
and these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where quote-unquote energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. And uh, for our listeners, um, if you're listening to this episode and you have not yet subscribed but would like to hear more, um, subscribe from your favorite podcast client from iTunes or Overcast or any other client. And if you feel so inclined, we'd love uh, a review on iTunes or uh, tweeting about it. So thanks so much. We are at Acquired FM on uh, on Twitter, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, and most importantly, thank you to Alex. This has yes. been a huge treat for us uh, and a lot of fun. Um, we'll... Uh, We'd love to do it again sometime, cover cover more aspects. Uh, but thanks so much for taking your time to, to be on our show. My pleasure. Love doing it. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh.